everybody. Thank you for tuning into episode 95 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or anyone that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. There you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. And you know, I don't talk a lot about the program, Path Back Recovery, other than in this opening, but even in the world, I mean, I think the word addiction can sound pretty heavy. Um, So take that word out, even as a matter of fact. And I have a great part two of this episode on teaching empathy coming up, but bear with me for one second, because I talk about so many other topics that I am passionate about, and so many of them, um, truly, that I just, I can't wait to talk about uh, parenting, couples, uh, today, empathy, that sort of thing. But I think it is safe to say that pornography is an epidemic and uh, unfortunately more of the norm these days. And so I just want to – I don't – sometimes I think I don't even do enough uh, with what I do for work of talking about this. But we really do need to be talking to our kids about it and if I'm going to be very bold, even our spouses because it truly doesn't need to be a part of anyone's life. And I don't say that from any place of – other than a place of caring, place a place of empathy because I've worked with well over a 1,000 individuals on the topic of trying to break free from – you know, let's again – Take the word addiction out of there, even if it's just uh, compulsive behavior or people who just uh, turn to pornography as coping, as boredom, as stress relief or whatever, period. Um, If you don't think you're struggling or if you feel like you can truly stop looking at any time, um, looking at it, uh, seeking after it, that sort of thing, but you haven't completely left it in your rearview mirror, you owe it to yourself or your spouse, your future self to just give it a bit more of a focus and remove it from your life altogether because there are tools like the Path Back, my uh, my program, or others that are designed to help you move past this once and for all. So uh, email me, try the program. You can do this. So there's uh, there's just kind of a quick off the cuff there. Uh, hey, you owe it to yourself to, uh, to, to dig a little deeper there. All right, on to part two of how to learn to teach empathy. So great feedback from part one. So I wanted to get to this part two ASAP. I'd initially planned on waiting a couple of weeks, but um, I just got a lot of good feedback from it. So let me answer the most asked question that I received over the past week. Here it is. Is it true that women are more empathetic than men? And I really, I had to do a little bit of digging here because I would have just reactively said yes, but here's what I discovered. Um, the question, uh, what about uh, sex, male or female? Are females more empathetic? So Folk wisdom argues that women are more empathetic than men, and studies generally confirm, and this is what I thought was interesting, that females report more feelings of empathy, but that might be explained by, you know, you could call it cultural training, or in societies where men are expected to be the strong, silent type, rub a little dirt in it, the Lone Ranger, John Wayne, stoic, um, that sort of thing, you know, they are they are reluctant to acknowledge their feelings with regard to empathy. So this notion is supported by recent neurological research in a study that presented adults with emotional imagery including pictures of people in pain. Women reported feeling more empathy, but the activity in their brains, that's what I thought was fascinating, as measured by an EEG, um, related uh, that it did not reveal evidence of differences in cognitive empathy. That was from a study by Groen in 2012. Another study presented kids ranging from ages 4 to 17 with animated clips depicting people getting hurt. Again, the females reported more feelings of empathy, but when research looked at physiological signs like pupil dilation and cerebral blood flow, there were no differences between boys and girls. That's from one for, uh, by a researcher named Mishala, Mishalka in 2013. So I think it's kind of uh, it's it's a little bit too much of a generalization to just say 
that um, that girls are more empathetic than males. Matter of fact, it kind of digs a little bit deeper to just that social stigma that we put out there that uh, boys are not supposed to show their show their feelings or that men are not supposed to. So um, there are plenty of uh, the, the one of the articles I found said there are plenty of cold women in the world, plenty of warm men. If boys do demonstrate less sympathy or empathetic concern for others, this is actually reason to help them develop their communication skills not to give up. So it uh, really does say something about helping men and boys be okay with expressing emotion and expressing empathy. So there you go. That uh, if you go look at pupil dilation, cerebral blood flow, and even the the electrical activity of the brain, uh, men are empathetic. Sorry, guys, kind of outed you there a little bit, right? I also ran into when I was studying, when I was looking up that, I found a pretty interesting article that said, are we morally stupid, morally precocious, or something in between? And first of all, I, it was funny with my kids in the home, stupid was a bad word. It was the S word. So that even feels funny to say. Um, but uh, the author George Eliot muses that we're all born morally stupid, unable to see others except through the lens of our own interests and standards, which, you know, is part of that concept we were talking about last week of empathy. Early psychological theories of moral and cognitive development endorse this claim. According to Jean Piaget, children are supremely self-interested or egocentric until about seven years old, and moral rules are slowly acquired through interactions with peers. Um, and I want to do a, I want to do a whole podcast on this next guy, Lawrence Kohlberg. Um, he believed that moral development proceeded through six stages, and these six stages are fascinating. But I'm just going to cover a little bit in this uh, briefly here. From the young child's focus on the avoidance of punishment, which was kind of one of those early stages, to the idealized adult's adherence to universal principles. And uh, in the uh, article that I found here, it said, Yet two-year-old Jeremy's animated concern for the welfare of a stranger seems to contradict these claims that we are all inherently morally stupid creatures. So you can see um, a very young child show that they have uh, a moral compass. So in the 21st century, as it turns out, we don't need to speculate on these matters. Scientific studies have provided a startling view of the infant mind. So again, are we born morally, as it, the article says, stupid? Or the picture that is emerging that is far more complex and nuanced than even Eliot or Piaget or Kohlberg or any of these um, psychologists uh, dreamed? Here's the experiment. In one series of experiments, six-month-old infants, that this, is, this blows my mind, were shown video clips of a red disc straining to roll up a hill. A yellow square races into view and pushes the circle up the hill. Here comes a blue triangle that appears and tries to, to push the circle back down to the bottom of the hill. The infants are then presented with a tray containing two toys, a yellow square or a blue triangle. Guess which ones the infants overwhelmingly chose to play with? Overwhelmingly, the yellow square. The yellow square that had tried to help the red disc up the hill and uh, not the blue triangle that tried to push the circle back down the hill. So six months old kind of blows me away, right? Um, that uh, that there's a little bit of a moral compass there. So kind of fascinating. Okay, so back to the topic today, teaching empathy, evidence-based tips for fostering empathy in children. And I'm going over again this study by Gwen Dewar, PhD. And uh, just really quickly, I wanted to kind of just jump over those. We talked about three different parts of empathy. And this is, I guess this is one of those times to say, if you haven't listened to part one, uh, I would strongly encourage you to do so before you go to part two, but uh, you can jump right in here and, and hopefully this one will still make sense. But um, empathy isn't an all or nothing proposition. And there's uh, researchers, uh, Gene Desity and Jason Cowell in 2014 did argue that the word empathy has become a catch-all for three distinct processes. One is called emotional sharing, which occurs when we experience feelings of distress 
as a result of, uh, of observing distress in another individual, emotional sharing. So, uh, you know, that concept of being an empath where you're feeling other people's pain, perhaps. Empathetic concern, which is the motivation to care for individuals who are vulnerable or distressed. When you see somebody in need, you just want to do whatever you can to take care of them. And then here's the one that we often think of, perspective taking, or the ability to consciously put oneself in the mind of another individual and imagine what that person is thinking or feeling. So when we talk in terms of everyday somebody being empathetic, um, I think that we are we are typically talking about this perspective taking. But uh, in in reality, we've got those three components, emotional sharing, empathetic concern, and perspective taking. Okay, so let's get back to the tips of how to teach empathy. Teaching empathy tip number six Help young children improve their face reading skills. So it's hard to show empathy if you can't read faces well. So some children, preschoolers in particular, are at a disadvantage because they truly do misinterpret facial expressions. If you show them photographs of people modeling different emotions, whether it's uh, happy or sad or angry or fear, surprise, um, those sort of things, the kids often misidentify what they see. And those difficulties can cause social problems. That's according to a study by Parker in 2013. So what do we do about this? Um, there are evidence-based tips on how to help children decipher nonverbal cues of emotion. So some of these are you can be a caregiver who talks and insightful, gives insightful talk and in, in conversations around emotion. Studies suggest that children develop better, they call them, quote, mind-reading skills, and we expose them to accurate, sensitive talk about thoughts and feelings. So um, you want to be able to, to point out if you see someone sad, of identifying that that, one's sad, that person's sad. If someone's happy, you're identifying that that person is happy. What's that person going through? So it really is pointing out um, emotions. So you are helping the, uh, your child identify correct facial cues. Number two, this one's pretty important too. Ask kids to consider the overall situation and context and then use that information to make sense of facial expressions. So we really shouldn't expect kids, especially little kids, to rely on facial cues alone. So um, young kids can use their understanding of a situation to help them make sense of facial expressions. For example, if they see somebody drop their ice cream, which is extremely sad, I'll add, they can imagine how they would feel if this happened to them as well. Have you ever done that? Have you ever kind of said, man, if you drop your ice cream, buddy, how would you feel? You almost see the kid get sad, right? And then his facial uh, expressions are going to change as well. And then it's just a matter of bringing awareness to, uh, hey, that's a, that... That's what people look like when they're sad. So then you're kind of feeling you're joining that person in that situation. Talk with children not only about facial expressions, but also about other forms of body language. Um, by the way, this is the uh, the third evidence-based tip on how we help kids read faces, which is part of this, uh, this um, piece on empathy, the number six tip. Talk with children not only about facial expressions, but also about other forms of body language. So children are sensitive to much more than a person's facial expression. They also notice tone of voice. Boy, do they, right? Body posture, gestures. When you're reading a story together or observing someone in real life, help kids make connections between different kinds of nonverbal cues. And I think that's a fun one, too. I don't know if you're uh, – I remember when I was reading stories to my kids. Can't wait till I can do this with my grandkids, by the way. But really getting animated with the stories. I mean, you do. You, you amp up your body language, your facial expressions, um, tone of voice, and that's a good time to kind of – Really work that out. So if you're ever in there reading stories to your kids, you feel silly about it. Don't. Um, that's uh, that's part of like uh, what you're you're teaching them. You're teaching them how to um, learn other forms of body language, which is ultimately teaching them empathy. And the fourth tip it gave here for extra practice: try playing emotion identification games. So this is interesting. Researchers develop, have developed training programs that ask kids to practice categorizing the emotions depicted by facial expressions. For example, in one study, researchers gave typically developing elementary school students training in the identification and self-production of facial cues. So after only six half-hour sessions, children improved their ability to read emotions compared with those who did not have any practice. So how do we do that at home? There are some people
people that suggest things like emotion cards. Um, you can also go through a magazine. Um, actually, do kids know what magazines are these days? You can go through a magazine and you can point out facial expressions, that sort of thing. I remember a book that I used to read to my kids when they were younger, and it really was simply one of those, you know, is this person happy? Is this person sad? Is this person, you know, crying? Is this person excited? And it's funny, those kind of books make more sense now. I think I liked them at the time because, you know, it was just fun to hear your little kid uh, maybe mispronounce some different, you know, and is that a boy or girl, you know, or that is that a, they have uh, light hair, dark hair, just to hear how cute they are when they talk. But um, so those are ways that you can kind of help your kids identify facial, facial cues. And that is important. All right. Teaching empathy tip number seven, kind of along those lines, show kids how to make a face um, while they try to imagine how somebody else feels. So suppose I tell you to make a sad face. Go ahead and do it right now. Whether you're, if you're on the treadmill, people are going to be a little bit concerned. But if you're driving along or uh, just listening at home, if you make a sad face, um, just play acting. Not really. Experiments show that simply going through the motions of making a facial expression can make us experience the associated emotion. So while researchers have asked people to imitate certain facial expressions, they have detected uh, changes in brain activity that are characteristic of the corresponding emotion. So people also experience emotion-appropriate changes in heart rate, skin uh, conductance, and body temperature. That's from Desity and Jackson in 2004. So it actually seems likely that we can boost our empathetic powers by imitating the facial expressions of people that we want to em- empathize with. And and I really feel like, you know, empathy comes in so many different forms or levels or different people or, again, have uh, kind of more of this in their factory settings than others. And you can almost watch some people when they are watching a movie and their face gets sad or when they're observing someone. I, you know, I was watching somebody at church the other day when somebody's giving a talk and somebody near to me. I mean, they just were so emotional as they watched the person um, up at the pulpit speaking. And you could tell that that person was just taking on those emotions. So, uh, you know, kind of showing kids how to make a face while trying to imagine how somebody else feels that actually making the face again, happy, sad, excited changes some of the, the the things that are going on in your brain to kind of mimic that as well. Teaching empathy tip number eight, help children develop a sense of morality that, that depends on internal self-control. And this one blows my mind, kind of not on rewards or punishments. So kids are, are capable of being spontaneously helpful and sympathetic, but experimental studies have shown that kids can become less likely to help others if they're given material rewards for doing so. So uh, kind of wild, right? So what the research goes on to say is that when, you know, that kids in, in essence want to help and when they know that they are only helping for a reward, that typically they aren't as likely to go back and help a second time. And, uh, and, and I know that they're, you know, so then if the question becomes, is it worth it to bribe or incentivize my kid to help? You know, that's where I go back to, it's almost that concept of harm reduction that I work with in the world of addiction. And uh, harm reduction, and just in a quick nutshell, is if you have somebody doing an extremely, extremely bad behavior, um, whether it's some sort of addictive behavior. And uh, I'll give you a really quick example, right? So back to this concept of working with uh, the concept of pornography addiction, right? So if uh, you're kind of looking for the triggers, if one of the triggers is complete boredom, or sometimes I call it crime of opportunity, let's say for a teenage boy, and so that teenage boy is uh, home alone, and there's that trigger, and then there's the thought where he's going to go start, you know, looking up pornography, that sort of thing, and then and then there's the action. The harm reduction model would say, okay, uh, you know, in a perfect world, he's going to run out of the house, he's going to call a friend, he's going to do that sort of do, you know, go exercise, uh, mindfulness techniques, those kind of things. But in but you know. What the harm reduction concept says is that, or if he's going to play video games for an hour instead of look at pornography, which is going to, you know, have a far more kind of uh, consequences of negative consequences of warping one's sexuality or, or, you know, kind of blasting out his dopamine receptor. So he's going to want to go to more and more. 
um, you know, hardcore, those kind of things, then playing video games is, is a considered harm reduction. So every now and again, I'll have a mom maybe, you know, text me later on after I've seen a teenager said, did, he, did you really tell him that uh, playing video games is not a bad thing? And it's like, well, you know, if the if his alternative is that he's, you know, he is being very open and honest about that he is going to look up pornography for an hour, then yeah. So in the harm reduction model, that's the way that works. So so this is that concept of, you know, reward and punishment. If you are incentivizing someone by paying them and they weren't going to do it at all, then, uh, hey, I want them to help because they might get something out of helping. So incentivizing someone to help is not a negative thing. What this study is talking about, though, is that in, you know, in the grand scheme of things, in the perfect world, getting someone to be able to help because of their own um, internal reward system or their internal self-control that that uh, that is ultimately going to be more beneficial than paying somebody off. So uh, it says again, for instance, kids are more likely to internalize moral principles when their parents talk to them about how wrongdoing affects other people, which is uh, inducing empathy. Um, that's what's from Hoffman and Saltstein. That was back in the 60s. So there's a I'll, pro- I'll link to an article. There's an article on um, a parental style that uh, kind of this, this parental approach. There's a whole article that talked about uh, the research that goes behind incentivizing versus non-incentivizing. So I'll throw that on there too. But, uh, but you know, in a again, I keep saying the word in a perfect world, in a world, in a perfect world, um, but being able to have someone understand that you helping them is going to help that person uh, live a better life or put themselves in a better position. I think, I think in terms of, um, done a lot of service projects in the last uh, couple of decades, I guess, especially some with the kids when we do um, hygiene kits or you're doing things like that for victims of floods or natural disasters. And when you're just getting in there and you're just, you know, you got this assembly line going and you've got all these uh, donations from volunteers and you're putting these kits together and sending out to third world countries or even people in your own backyard. And you've got your kids just doing that because it feels good. And then, uh, and then kind of nurturing that rather than saying, Hey, if you come do this, I'll give you 20 bucks. I think that's kind of where that's, uh, that's applying to. All right. Teaching empathy tip number nine, educating kids about uh, failures of the imagination. I love this one. Let me kind of set this one up first. Recently, my wife and I attended a football game. It was at a local high school here, uh, Oakmont High School in Roseville, California. My daughter was cheerleading, and so we were going to the football game to um, to watch her. So summers in California can be really hot. The evenings can be just perfect. They really can. But this was an unseasonably cold evening. Now I am bald. I have 20 different beanies. Um, in the opening of my podcast, I talk about being an ultra runner. For some reason, many of the ultra marathons I do hand out jackets as prizes. I have so many jackets. It's incredible. Matter of fact, I should be donating some of those. Um, I have more thin pairs of gloves than I probably realize, again, because of running early, running in the cold, that sort of thing. Um, so I pretty much have this strict, I don't like to be cold, so I'm not going to be cold policy. But we were not prepared for this particular night. I think all the other Friday nights leading up to this, it had been just unseasonably warm, and I'm even bringing a jacket, and I'm ended up holding on to my jacket the entire time. But this particular night, I think it was back in September or maybe October, we were we were freezing cold. And uh, I wasn't even going to mention this part. I don't know if this is a California thing or high school kids these days. But at the same game, we were so cold that uh, we were going to walk to the car to get warm during halftime. And I'm talking, I can see my car from the fence at this high school. And so just walk up. There's a couple of parents that are manning the gate. And I just say, uh, um, hey, do we need a stamp or anything on our hand? Because we're going to run out to the car and just kind of warm up. And they said, oh, no, you don't need a stamp. There's no reentry. And they just said it so kindly that I, I, I just said, uh, I, I don't know what you mean. And they just said, well, once you go out, you can't come back in. 
And and I was like, well, my car's right there. We're freezing. I don't have a jacket. So I'm just going to go out, hang out in my car, come back in here. And uh, the woman is so kind, just said, yeah, you can't do that. And and I thought, yeah, I'm a, at the time, 48-year-old man. You know, uh, I, I, I think I can just kind of trust that I'll go out there and uh, sit in my car, warm up and come back. But we were told, nope, you can't do it. So um, anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. But my point being, have you ever failed to prepare adequately for an outing because you didn't imagine how cold or how hungry or thirsty or tired you were going to be? This, this, is, this is kind of fun. This is what researchers call the hot-cold empathy gap, and it appears to be a very universal problem. So when people are comfortable or calm or confident or satiated with their appetites, they forget what it's like to be in the grip of what the researchers call a hot state. They forget how desperate certain physical conditions are, like hunger or thirst or sleeplessness or pain can make one feel, and they underestimate the power of these emotional states. So this is kind of that concept of, you know, when you're sick, you often forget, you know, sometimes you hear people say, I, I don't even remember what it was like to feel better. When I feel better, I am going to never take this for, for granted again. I will appreciate every moment that I feel better. But so it's kind of that same same thing where when you are freezing cold, when I was freezing cold at that uh, football game, it's like, I can't even remember what it's like to be warm. I can't wait for it to be warm. Now, how does this apply in teaching empathy? The hot, cold empathy gap leads to mistakes in judgment and failures of empathy. So, you know, because it's like, you know, you, you see somebody and they're freezing and that sort of thing. And if you're sitting there wearing your jacket and your beanie and your scarf, you're, you're kind of thinking, geez, you know, what's wrong with them? You know, they're just a little cold. But if you think back to those times when you were that cold, that gives you that gives you more empathy, kind of understanding that hot, cold empathy gap. Uh, so, for instance, when we're talking with our children about something that's painful that they've experienced, you know, we can offer them examples of other people who have been through something similar. The, the idea is absolutely not to dismiss their feelings, but rather to acknowledge those feelings and help the child feel more connected with others. The key, do a little bit of empathy work yourself there first. Ask them, um, you know, tell me more about how you were feeling at that time. What was it like? I mean, so if you're seeing somebody that's freezing cold, then that's a time, hey, hey, there, champ, uh, do you remember a time when you were freezing? Or do you remember that time that we were uh, wherever? We were out under the stars or we went camping, you forgot your jacket. Do you remember how cold that was? You know, do you remember what you were doing? Do you remember how you were, your teeth were chattering? And when they do, it's like, man, what do you think that guy's feeling like? And I'm telling you, sometimes that's when your own kid's going to say, I'm going to go give him my jacket. You know, and that's a boy, that's a parenting win, right? Um, boy, this one popped in my head. Maybe this is a, um, a little too much uh, information. Talking about that hot, cold empathy gap. Um, long, long ago, that uh, I was in a double-decker bus in England, back in my software days. And I don't think I've ever had to use the restroom so bad in my entire life. I, you know, again, I'm an adult. I'm a grown man. And I was to the point where it was so bad that I was kind of like, you know what? Uh, I'm sure grown men have, used, have wet themselves in the past. That's one of the time where I was thinking I probably I'm going to want to edit this right, but I'm not going to edit it. But I was like thinking, oh my gosh, this is like insane. I mean, I am I am I am dying here. I you know what happens if the bladder explodes? I mean, yeah, I don't. I, does my medical insurance carry over into England? I was going through all of this, and then finally we stop. And I remember it was near uh, Harrods, um, a very big uh, department store in England. And I just, I, I get off the double-decker bus. I don't think I was supposed to at that point, but I just thought, I don't care. I'll get a taxi. I'll do something. And I end up going to the restroom. And um, and I just remember to this to this day of how how bad that hurt. So so my whole point being, man, what, you know, what do I do now? If we're going on a road trip, if my kids even so much as just hint that they have to go to the restroom, my mind goes right back to that Herod's experience. And I am not about to be that dad that's like, uh, 
you know, we're driving to Utah from California and you get one stop, kids. It's like, oh, no, we'll stop 100 times if we have to. To the point now where my kids even, you know, they're, I think they just assume they're like, uh, Dad, do you have to go to the restroom? And I'm just like, I, I know what that means. So I'm, I say, yep, absolutely. We'll find the next one because that's that empathy, you know, that hot, cold empathy gap. I can I can put myself back in that situation. And the last thing I want is one of my kids to just be dying for hours and have uh, me just sitting up there, you know, listening to uh, the radio or something like that and uh, not stopping to go to the bathroom where they want to stop the bathroom. So so we can teach kids about the existence of the empathy gap. I love that concept and uh, the ways that it can bias our judgment. So before we decide that somebody is being unreasonable, we should ask ourselves, have we forgotten what it's like to be in that situation? Have we forgotten what it's like to be completely starving or absolutely tired or to have to go to the bathroom so bad that uh, you're willing to... Uh, you know, uh, wet yourself on the uh, upstairs floor of a double-decker bus um, driving around in England. So, again, so that one of my kids has to go, we are pulling over and we are going because uh, that, that hot, cold empathy gap, I understand that. All right, let's talk about the 10th tip on teaching empathy. Talk with your children about the mechanisms of moral disengagement. I thought this was kind of an interesting concept. Um, in fact, I am going to pause here. I'm going to sneeze. Hang on. We'll be right back. Uh, we'll be right back after these uh, messages. Now the sneeze doesn't, it's gone. It's gone. All right. There's how you get rid of a sneeze. Um, say that you're going to pod, pause your podcast. So let's go. Let's get back to 10. Um, talk with children about the mechanisms of moral disengagement, the rationalizations that people use to justify callous or cruel acts. This one is deep. If you've taken any psychology class in high school, college, most likely you've heard of this research. Research has demonstrated that average, well-adjusted people can be persuaded to harm others or even torture them as long as they're provided with the right rationale. In a famous series of experiments developed by Stanley Milgram of Yale University, subjects were told that they were participating in a, quote, learning experiment that required them to administer painful electric shocks to another person. This was back in 1963. The experiment was a fake. It was a ruse that was made convincing with plausible props and an actor who pretended to be in pain after the study participants pressed the button. But the participants were fooled and urged on by an authoritative man in a white lab coat. They dutifully administered shocks to the screaming victim. And in fact, this and, and you've, you, I think this stuff's on YouTube. I remember watching this and uh, I've seen it a couple of times. Um, but almost 65% of the participants continued to press the button even after the victim had appeared to fall unconscious. So again, if you haven't seen this study, it's just, it's mind-blowing. So uh, somebody hears someone in another room and uh, the person the, that is in there doing the study um, the participant presses a button and then it uh, gives the person an electric shock and there's an authoritative figure saying, all right, go ahead and uh, go ahead and press it again. So 65% of the participants continued to even press the button after the victim had appeared to fall unconscious. The people were not psychopaths. They were ordinary people that were exposed to social pressure from a plausible authority figure. You know, you throw a lab coat on the guy and all of a sudden people are willing to kind of do things that are outside of their comfort zone. So with the right rationalizations, otherwise decent people can disengage from their moral responses. And it's not just an adult phenomenon. There's some studies that show that kids can do it too. So if we're really serious about teaching empathy, I think it's important. Now, I'm not saying you take your five-year-old and you show them that experiment. But I remember that one did that one, that one sat there or sunk in with me for a while where I thought, you know, just being, I love the fact that just being aware that that kind of a study exists is enough to kind of change kind of the, the, the di dynamic, um, meaning that I, you know, I would like to think that I would have been one of those 35% of the people that would not have pressed the button. But uh, now knowing that 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 is where people can get to if they do feel this authoritative figure is um, asking them to do something that is against their moral compass that uh, that they will say no. And this goes back to, you know, I guess this is a nice way to maybe wrap this one up today. 
but it really goes back to just being more authentic, which, uh, which is uh, that there's my big soapbox is um, feeling authentic. So feeling okay with what you feel is okay. So if you are one who does not want to put someone through um, screaming in another room as you press a button that is uh, that a researcher is telling you to do so, that you're going to not do it. That, uh, that you are going to step back and just say, okay, no, that's not what I'm going to do. And if somebody's saying, you know, do you know that I'm telling you to or do you, that you're really letting me down or whatever, it's like, I don't care. I'm being authentic. This is not who I am. I'm not someone who is going to inflict pain or torture someone else. So, um, and, I, and I think that's kind of the big takeaway from that teaching empathy tip number 10, which is uh, from that Milgram study from the 1960s. So, so there you have it. If you go back to the first episode, now this one, you've got 10 tips on teaching empathy. So, um, I, and I'm going to try to do this thing again that I really uh, got some nice feedback from last time. Let's go over these. Uh, so what are the, uh, what are the tips? Number one was uh, our teaching empathy tip number six. So number six from today, the first five were in episode one, where it was, it was help, help young children improve their face reading skills. So it really is learning how to read visual cues. So, um, and, and that really does go back to talking about emotions um, it talks about body language. It talks about playing emotional identification games. It talks about really amping up your storytelling while you're doing that. Uh, teaching kids how to make a face while they imagine how somebody else feels. Remember that when, and, and it is that thing, I think uh, you do hear some of the research that shows when you smile, you know, what happens in the brain, it lights up and that sort of thing. Same thing with frowns, same thing with uh, making a sad face. That, uh, that it really does um, change. It detects changes in brain activity that are characteristic of those corresponding emotions. Number eight had to do with helping children de- develop a sense of morality that depends on internal self-control, not rewards or punishments. I skipped an entire paragraph that I, that I had highlighted here in my notes. It was um, talking about uh, other research showing that kids are more likely to develop an internal sense of right and wrong if their parents use uh, inductive discipline, an approach that emphasizes rational explanations and moral consequences, not arbitrary rules and heavy-handed punishments. So that this is that I was going all the way into that uh, the stuff about reward and punishment. But for instance, kids are more likely to internalize moral principles when their parents talk to them about how wrongdoing affects other people, inducing those feelings of empathy. Not just again, I like the I missed that whole concept of um, not just arbitrary rules and heavy-handed punishments. When I have teenagers in my office, for example. I know that they're not perfect. I absolutely know that. I think I've said before that parents send teenagers to me and say, fix them, when in reality, it, we're, what we're really looking for is more modeling um, behavior by the parents. And uh, a big component of that is not just these arbitrary rules. Uh, often teenagers tell me that you know they know that things are going to be taken away from them anyway, and they the, their phone or driving privileges or whatever it is, it's going to be taken away, and then it's going to be just held as some just arbitrary rule. They may get it back. They may not get it back. They'll get it back when they're, quote, doing better or when they finally are being nice. And uh, those are arbitrary rules. So those arbitrary rules don't leave a lot of hope um, from the person being punished. I can I can tell you that from working with hundreds and hundreds of teenagers. So, uh, you know, when you can kind of come up with those, and that's why I love that nurtured heart approach, when uh, everybody's kind of sitting down together when the waters are calm, you're coming up with some consequences that uh, everyone's on board with and there's a there's a time frame to them they know exactly why they're getting the punishment or the consequence and they know that there will be an end to it and that way you as parent are not punisher but uh, you actually are just enforcing something that has been um, agreed upon by everybody else if you want more information on that go go look up the uh, podcast i've done on the nurtured heart approach and then teaching empathy tip number nine was uh, educating kids about failures of the imagination that is that hot cold empathy gap so, um, you know, we don't always prepare perfectly and uh, it's kind of good to 
put yourself back in those situations where you maybe were cold or hungry or tired or those sort of things as well. And number 10 is uh, it was that one about um, moral disengagement that uh, rationalizations that people make that uh, keep them from being empathetic. All right. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to learn these additional concepts of teaching empathy. And I know a lot of them were about teaching empathy to kids, but uh, a lot of this too can be used with teenagers and uh, spouses, or I hope that it brings awareness to you as well. Um, Especially like that one that really rung true to me was that hot, cold empathy gap, because um, we've all been in those situations where we have not been prepared and then we do just feel distress. And uh, so then when we see someone else who is not prepared in a different situation, um, sure is easy to kind of go into our own moral high horse or judgment And there are times where um, we have been that person. So hopefully that will express some empathy as well. All right. Hey, thanks for spending the time. Um, If you have a moment, go check out Eli's Extracts, E-L-I-E-X-T-R-A-C-T-S. That's the all-natural organic shave cream for men and women. And use coupon code virtualcouch, all one word, get 25% off your order. And uh, always um, grateful if you go stop by the uh, Virtual Couch Instagram account. And uh, I was going to say sign up, but uh, follow there, like, comment. And uh, go to TonyOverbay.com and you can sign up to learn more about some really exciting new projects coming up. Okay, everybody have a wonderful week and uh, may you do well in your search for being more empathetic. We'll see you next time on The Virtual Catch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Plastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most Heal the legs and hearts you broke